Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 11, 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first Christians. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, we're delighted to have a special guest speaker this week, um, Brad Gill has been in ministry for many years. Brad, come on up. I want to start with a personal story. July 1973. I had just finished college, walking down Brookline, and came in, uh, Brookline down Beacon Street to a Red Sox game, and this tall guy was right in front of me, and I thought he might be going to the Red Sox game too. And we started talking, and he started talking about Jesus. And I was, I was kind of open and interested, and he invited me to church. And I came to church, and at the end of that summer, I, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. So that man was Brad Gill, who was an undergraduate at Gordon College at the time. Um, so we go back many years. Um, a few years later, a number of us came out and helped begin Westgate Church. Brad went to the West Coast to California and got involved with missions there and married the oldest daughter of an incredible man who um, helped turn the whole world to focus on unreached peoples. Brad and Beth have been overseas, have been involved in leadership in many ways, and um, we are so privileged to have you with us, Brad. Thank you so much. I tell that story a little bit differently. <laughs> I remember Steve opened the conversation, and uh, the thought comes back to me, the people who are six feet four inches are looking for guys that are the same size, and they start talking to them. So anyway. Well, it is a, it's a delight to be here today. Um, <clears throat> I um, only have a few minutes, and uh, they gave me a job here. They said, talk about unreached peoples. Maybe many of you have over your Christian experience heard of this, what I call this missional imaginary that we operate in mission today called Unreached Peoples. Maybe some of you don't. Um, I uh, just today want to sketch it out and give you some sense of hope. We're getting somewhere. Uh, the statistics seem to, to show it. 
but to stay also betray that there's still a major challenge in front of us. What's an unreached people? Quickly. It's the largest group of people within which the gospel can spread as a movement to Christ without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. That's the largest group within the gospel can spread as a movement to Christ without encountering barriers of understanding, so language, so forth, or acceptance, possibly religion, culture. It's an unreached people. What are we dealing with statistically? Let me just give you one proportion. Just about in these next weeks, the world population is hitting 8 billion. If we were to count those people groups without the, around the world where there has yet to be a movement to Christ of any significant size in the history of Christian the movement, of any significant size, we're dealing with 2 billion people in those unreached peoples. That's just one statistical proportion I'll give you. 25% of the world are still in and needing an initiative and an outreach that would explicitly, intentionally move into that people. Sometimes we call it a cross-cultural, but it also could be religious. It could be all sorts of challenges and, and barriers that we have to confront. So I'd like to suggest that not only do we operate on a certain missional imaginary with unreached peoples, and that the church is rising to it, not only the church here in the United States, but the church across the world, but we're... Um, I, I just noticed my brother was down here. I lost the second part of my sentence. I didn't know he was coming. Guys, this is Dennis Gill. He helped plant this church. Dennis, would you stand up? Nancy, Dennis, just stand up. Just stand up. Yeah. I'm sorry to do this, but uh, yeah, sit down. Yeah, he took the second part of my sentence away. Um, yeah. Um, but in this, this whole process of unreached peoples, what we're dealing with is an imaginary. It's how we think about it. Sometimes we, we use the word strategy. And we have hundreds of organizations, not just across the states, but enterprises and initiatives right across the global sending base. Brazil, Korea, China, it's all involved. A major sending base today. Mongolia, just let's talk about Mongolia. 50 years ago, we, this was an unreached people. Major explosion and a movement. Per capita, they might be the largest per capita sending country in the world. Mongolia. The Kabyle Berbers in North Africa, where we were, just across the, uh, the landscape, was a distinctive Berber tribal mountain region. It exploded to Christ. Years of effort there, but finally it exploded. It moved right into France because of the history of the relationship of France and Algeria. It moved right into France. as one of the largest Christian movements, especially in the Berber world. But that movement didn't come across into our Berber region. There was distinct people groups, each needing an initiative. The Iranians, you get it in the news what's happening with Iran, the largest movement to Christ today. The fastest growing churches in Iran. You'll never hear it any other way, but it's amazing what's happening with Iranians turning to Christ. And the Chinese. 1973, as I was starting to get into this whole thing, Nixon, you know, with Kissinger, takes a trip to China. Who would have thought what we're going to find as that 
whole country opens up and that the, the base of the movement to Christ had been under severe persecution. We thought it had gone away and it just burgeons up. And today it's just, it's a tenth of the population. It's just million Christians and sending, finding every effort, even against all the, I, uh, my, my second daughter married into China. Uh, her husband, his mom is full Chinese from, from Shanghai, was raised in Taiwan. And uh, when we went to the second part of the wedding, uh, we went to Shanghai. And so I was walking the streets of Shanghai just uh, feeling, and, 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 and Shelly, my new in-law, was the executive pastor of a powerful urban church in China. Was overseeing 11 different churches as they moved across that, that urban um, Shanghai. And uh, they had me preach, you know, big guy from America, had me preach, you know, but I'm learning all the time. Shelly would th- say things. I'd say, Shelly, Shelly, what's it like, you know, uh, you know, trying to learn from her? You know, what, 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 the church here, how do you, how do you see a church uh, move here? It says, you need two things, Brad. You need two things. You need evangelist and you need pastor. One takes care of people, otherwise they lost. That's all you need. Moves on. <laughs> There's a missiology, you know. Uh, just fascinating being there, but just the burgeoning church and the sending effort of China is just amazing. So this, this is our imaginary. It's being filled in. We're getting the reports, the feedback. This morning, I just want to point out from our passage this morning what I believe is kind of a template. It's not going back to Scripture to find the pure form of the church, but it's a church emergent with certain dynamics that often we jump over because we want to go to Peter or we want to go to Paul. But in this particular passage, we're dealing with a very wonderfully formed, believing leader named Barnabas who shows us something that I believe is indicative of what we see on the frontiers of God's movement today. It's what we're just, we're getting the reports and you can put it together. These are some of the dynamics, like just a few. There's way more. But I thought I'd suggest some of those to you this morning. Where did I put that? Uh, I had my little clicker. Where did it go? What's that? Can they? Oh, there it is. Hold it, guys. Where's my wife when I need her? Okay. <laughs> so, church emergent. And there's our passage today. Yeah, thanks. Okay. There's our passage. So the first thing we see here is a sovereign God uses diverse ways to move among unreached peoples. Well, that sounds pretty basic, but it's just phenomenal. The ways in which God is sovereignly directing these movements to take place. Um, Here in this passage, this interesting word scattered under persecution scattered under the persecution of Stephen. And so you, you have this movement starting to take place. It was said just at a conference I was this, at this last week, one of the really perceptive uh, people in the quantifying the, the, the movement across the world, she said this, most likely the horizon of the movement of Christ in the world is a persecuted church facing a broken world. That might be the imaginary of the future we need to lock into. A persecuted church facing a broken world. 
but all these different ways that God moves to, to bring himself into the life of a people. Um, the diaspora today includes 250 million people on the move. We feel it, we're sensitive to it here because of our southern border. But everywhere, not just Ukraine, everywhere people pushed out, some people pulled out, all sorts of intentions, and, and, and all that does to disrupt people, to make them more open to the gospel. The social media today, we talked a little bit of it downstairs, but it, it lifts people out. It lifts people out. It disembeds them from the families and the pressures of their immediate culture and opens them up to new ideas. All this is happening. We have to take it seriously that God, a sovereign God, is not saying, oh my, it's all out of control. Do we believe that the sovereign God, as it says in Acts 17, he knows the times of people's lives. He knows the places of their habitation. And he is determining what happens to those times and those places so that perchance they might seek him and find him. That's the sovereign God. We see it here early in this passage. It's one of the dynamics that he's in charge of. But there's three other dynamics here that I find uh, most important in understanding uh, the frontier and especially amongst unreached peoples. The first is, you'll notice it says in, in this, it uses the phrase, the Lord Jesus. And then it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And they remained faithful to the Lord. And they were added to the Lord. What's happening here? Dr. Luke is writing this history. And he's indicating here that rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, what's happening as the church emerges in the Greco-Roman world, what is the term that means the most? Lord. They've got their Caesar Jesus is Lord. The idea of the Messiah and the Christ hasn't, hasn't left. It's all over Paul's epistles. But in the movement of the church, what you start to see is the emphasis on a different syllable. That's all it is. It's just they've moved over. They said, this is meaningful. So it's more than translation. It's It's emphasis. In an emergent church, we'd have to say it this way. The unreached will come to terms when turning to Christ. Those are two places here. It talks about coming to terms. It talks about turning. And it, it, when it comes to these terms, you'll, one of the great things that's happened in the last uh, about uh, half a year, is the new translation called the First Nations Version. Have you heard about this? We put translation in the hands of our American Indian brothers 
And wow, powerful translation of the scriptures. I wish I could read it, but the first time I heard about what was happening as, you know the story. We all are a bit self-conscious when we tell this story. The subjugation of those Indian nations as we as European, as we came in as a civilization, we know the stories. We're relatively self-conscious about it. And they became Christian. And they kind of were taken off the unreached people's thing, but actually there's a stagnation. And the younger generations are not turning to Christ. And then comes this translation. And the first time I heard about it was when I was talking to an American Indian brother, and he started, to, he was, as he was talking about the work of Creator, he didn't use the word God, he used the word Creator. And all through this translation, when you see God, usually you'll see the word creator. It meant more to them in their world, into their religious and cultural world, to see him as the great creator. The emphasis was on a different syllable. And they, they, it meant some, it's our turn. And so who's Jesus in here? Jesus is is. Uh, what is it? Jesus is um, creator. Help me, my wife. Creator is what? Creator is uh, creator sets free. Whenever you see Jesus throughout the scripture, creator sets free. Creator sets free. Peter's solid rock. They got all sorts of names in here, but that's the Indian tradition. You give a picture for a person in their name. You don't just give a name, you give a picture, you see? It's a powerful translation. And what's happening is the First Nations movements among the inner varsity and crew are seeing the younger American Indian generations turn to Christ because it's theirs. This is us, you see? And what is, is, is latent within them, an ethno-linguistic kind of religious background, is coming to the fore as they come to terms that are more meaningful. When we're dealing with frontiers, when we're dealing with these unrepeated, that's what emerges, is a coming to terms. It feeds their movement. It also uses here this word turning. That's a word for conversion. Epistrophe is a, is a term that means turning, the reorientation of a life. It's not substituting something coming from outside on them, it's bringing the gospel that transforms them, and they turn. A turning, a reorientation is taking place. One of the really neat things that uh, uh, is happening, back in 1983, I think, the, the, the translation of, of um, the scriptures went into the Bengali language, and they changed the Hindu background Hindi terms for uh, uh, for the scriptural persons like John the Baptist or Jesus. They just gave them Muslim background terms, the ones that are generally used across that population of 150 million. They just changed the terms. And what we saw happen in the late 20th century was, for the, uh, was this burgeoning movement to Christ amongst Muslims. We had never seen anything of this size. Bangladesh was the place. 
They came to terms, and people turned to Christ. Now, I'll let you know, we had only seen about nine movements to Christ amongst Muslims for 14 centuries. You know this is a hard work. And in the last, since Bangladesh, and in the last uh, first two decades of this century, we've seen over 800 movements to Christ amongst Muslims. Something is happening as we come to terms and release this into their hands. These people, peoples, they're able to see what's needed in their own terms. And there's a turning to Christ. <clears throat> That's one of the reasons why we use the term emergent. Bit of a dangerous term. But it, it's a term that really describes what happens. It's when the gospel is, is brought into and the soil of a people, it's able to be planted there. This is the type of reflection. And you'll see Christians emerge that will want to, in a sense, take possession of every single aspect of their culture. They might spit out some of it, but they'll want to take possession of it. Possessio is a biblical term. They want to see the gospel come in and take their entire culture. And so this is what's characteristic. The other thing we see here is that initial leadership must see the grace of God. This is Barnabas. This is Barnabas, a man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, the formation of this man was critical. He was not Peter. He was not Paul. He came into this situation and got alongside of something that had already happened through the lay uh, ministry, the, the travels of those who were... He was coming in, uh, to, in a sense, to survey what was happening. And it has this interesting statement. He saw the grace of God. I think you might be able to, to suggest what that means. Have you seen that in people's lives? It's why we love testimonies. You hear a testimony, it's like, you just see the grace of God. Okay? That's Barnabas. He comes in and gets alongside and sees the grace of God. The formation of a person who is sent out into the frontiers today must have this capacity. They must have this perception. It's a disposition. It's a manner. It's not just us to them, but us with them, listening, hearing, seeing the grace of God. It's a critical moment. I remember when we were in the mountains and our mission had us move to the city of Marrakesh and and this was years ago, and we came in, and there was, a, there was a family that had turned to Christ. I'm going to call the father Sam. I think I've spoken about him before, but I can still remember coming in and being someone like Barnabas who was coming in to see what God had done in this man and his family. A whole family had come to Christ, turned to Christ. Um, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful how his wife, who was kind of a holdout, um, finally came to Christ through an incredible series of visions that assured her that it's okay. And so she came into the faith. And so they had this wonderful family 
you know, 15 to 20 of them had turned to Christ. And uh, I remember one time when they had to attend, they were asked to attend a a more traditional uh, uh, fellowship of believers that had been there for about 30 years. And they had developed their own culture and tradition of doing church. And so uh, Sam and his wife hadn't got the the message. They hadn't gotten the uh, instructions. They just came in full of the Holy Spirit, full of life. And they came into the situation and... uh, and sat down and went through the service. And at one point, his wife, Father Ma, got so overwhelmed, overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord, she just started ululate. You know what that is? You know, well, there were rules in the church, and you didn't do that. You know, uh, bad form, you know. And, uh, but they, they, they were just so fresh and alive and real and true and grounded in what today still remains one of the top 31 largest peoples in the world, unreached people still to be reached, and those are the Arabs of Morocco. So getting alongside was a, just a delight, um, and, and uh, that's one of the characteristics, one of the dynamics we'll see today. The church will emerge in new and relevant forms, new and relevant patterns. So you see here, Barnabas goes off and tries to find Saul. This is an indication, again, of, a, of, of an earlier relationship. Barnabas was the one in Acts 9, if you remember, who, when Paul was preaching there, having come to Christ, knocked off his horse, he was saying things in Damascus. He's, under, he's coming to Jerusalem because he'd gotten kicked out. It's Barnabas who sees the grace of God in this former Jewish terrorist. He sees the grace of God. He does not fear like the rest of the church. And he brings them into the fellowship in Jerusalem because he sees the grace of God. He says, look, here's what we got, you know. But he, on this occasion, Acts 11, he goes to Tarsus to try to find Saul. And we all know who this Saul ended up being and how central he was to the emergence of the church in the, in the Greco-Roman world. Two words used here for church, ecclesia, and then this is where they're first called Christians, ecclesia and Christianos. Again, new terms, new terms. A terms like ecclesia had come out of the Old Testament scriptures, having been translated into Greek. And Paul's in his own, can I say it this way? Paul's young, he's in ministry, and he's still in his own transformation of his missional imaginary. As he moves in mission, he's, he's, he's using terms that seem to be relevant. He's ministering to an emergent church there, not only in Tarsus, but in Antioch. And, and he, how do I say it? He, in a sense, he's, he, this is the template of the church that's emerging. And we get it in our epistles. We get it right across the New Testament. What emerges here? There's a dialogue here. This isn't just Paul figuring out in his head. But it's grounded in a whole new world. 
and his epistles are developing how you respond to the real controversial questions that are emerging in this, this unreached people. One of the recent things that's happened out in, um, in uh, Southeast Asia, an initiative was, was led by a, I'm just going to call her Claire. She's from Singapore, Chinese. And uh, Claire has gotten alongside in her service in Cambodia, gotten alongside the evangelical leadership there of the church. And they have started to address with the leadership a dialogue of how they're going to deal with the large dominant majority Buddhist world around them. Many of the rituals of the Buddhist world are automatically anathema. They are unclean. But you should recall what God said to Peter in the chapter before. Do not render unclean what I have called clean. And so this church, this evangelical leadership is in dialogue over how to readdress the, the rituals and the, the behaviors and the consciousness of the Buddhist world around them. That is how they will see that people come to Christ. It's a fascinating thing to read everything coming out of their study. These are our brothers, the evangelical leadership of Cambodia, wrestling with what's outside their doors. And this is so common today, isn't it? Don't we wrestle? with what's happening with our culture outside our door. How do we reach that culture? It's changing. Korea is dealing with the Buddhist secular world around them. This is the fastest, most explosive church in the last half a century in Korea. But they have hit a plateau. And they're saying, what's, what needs to change? They're readdressing the challenge of the world around them. India, the movements to Christ, Powerful people movements of Christ have happened in the Dalit or the untouchable world of, of India. How are they going to reach the upper caste of India? These are the challenges. And Claire kind of leads the way with some of the key leaders like Tep Samneng, and they are readdressing, asking the question of how do we uh, confront this today? I like this term from the First Nations version, creator. It's, it's my conviction that while we try to come up with the template and the method, that's what we do as Americans, that are going to reach everyone, God is creator. He doesn't just reproduce. It's not photocopying. Every single people, the groundedness, that world, the gospel comes in, and there's a creation that takes place. That's what he's doing. And we see in someone like Barnabas, because he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's sensitive to the creative activity. He can actually bend his categories. He can loosen his grip on the control panel and watch and see the grace of God. That inordinate, that, that incongruent grace that is reaching those Gentiles, those Greeks in totally different ways. 
He saw the grace of God, a creator God doing a new thing. That's what's happening in the dynamics of unreached peoples today. And I invite this church. This is, not, this is a, a imaginary that's been around for a while, unreached peoples. I invite you. I think we're at the most exciting time. We are facing the religious consciousness of the Buddhist, the Hindu, and the Muslim world in totally new ways. This is the way to turn and say, this is the drama that we're in now. This is the time. Let's lift our eyes. Let's believe with God that this is, he's changing our missional imaginary. Let's join together and expect him to continue to do that. Lord Jesus, we just come to you today and we just thank you that you are the apostle and you are the high priest, that it's your effort, your ministry, your brilliance and genius, your spirit that leads all of these efforts. Make us sensitive to your grace that we see in the lives and the, and the faces of those we minister. We'd ask this in your name. Amen.